Do summer projects your way with Memorial Day savings from The Home Depot. With free delivery on over 2 million items, you can make the most of summer grilling and dig into gardening. Plus, get same-day delivery on thousands of products like power tools and storage to tackle any last-minute garage project. Summer your way with Memorial Day savings from The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. Auto Trader. Welcome to the NASCAR NBC podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan. Today here at NASCAR Plaza, fourth floor in one of the radio rooms where I am joined by NASCAR president, Steve Phelps. Steve, thanks for being here. My pleasure. It's great to be here, Nate. Is it awkward at all to hear the word president in front of your name Absolute, two and a half weeks in? Absolutely. So I'm not used to it at all. So I used to have a title that was really, really, really long. <laughs> I had the longest title in all of NASCAR. So just to hear the one word and have it be present, it's, uh, it's pretty cool. You beat out Steve O'Donnell for longest title? <laughs> oh, he, by, he talks about a that a wide, lot. By a wide margin, What actually. was it? Global VP global Marketing? EVP something? Global <laughs> Chief... I don't even remember. There was marketing, <laughs> media, global, sales. There's, there was a bunch of different things in there. We should give you some time here because I'm talking to you. Your official start date was October 1st, right? Yep, it was. So this would be day 18 of Steve Phelps as NASCAR president. So I'm, and I'm, counting? I should probably I've preface everything. Days, yeah, you made 18 days. I should probably preface everything I say here by, hey, you've only been on the job all of two and a half weeks. But do you enter this job, Steve, knowing exactly what needs to be done having been a part of the organization for now in your 14th year or or is it a big enough shift in responsibilities that you're spending st- some time getting your bearings at this point i think it's uh it's a huge advantage actually having been in the sport um i know the players teams tracks drivers uh sponsors media partners it, it gives me a significant advantage been able to participate in mistakes that have been made, participate in things that we've done well, have a lot of learnings, learn from, uh, you know, what Mike has done previously and then what Brent has done and now being in the chair and putting my own stamp on things and how I believe things should move forward. But a huge, huge advantage to being here 14 seasons. And we were just talking before we got started, Steve, that your day-to-day included something called Garage Talk. (laughs) <laughs> which is, uh, this is a weekly event in which NASCAR executives sort of meet? No, or, it's, or it's it, not weekly. Okay, It is not weekly, yeah. So it's essentially a town hall. And so we've got different offices. We have offices in New York, um, obviously here in Charlotte, Concord, headquartered in Daytona Beach. We have an LA office as well, one up in Conover. So it's a, we have different folks all over the country, much like we do with our racing. And so it's just an opportunity or tool for us to get together and have a discussion about what's going on. So yesterday's Garage Talk was centered around three main areas. One, 2019 planning and making sure our employee base knows the direction that we're going in as a sport so they can communicate it to business partners or other folks in the industry. The second part was around competition. So I was the host. I interviewed Steve O'Donnell. I'm a terrible uh, interviewer. I'm not very good at asking questions. I, I'm hopefully far better at answering them. You know, talked about competition in 18, what to expect with the rules package in 19, why we made the change, 
you know, what's a tapered spacer, you know, one arrow package, 750, 550, where it's happening, why it's happening. Uh, and then a little bit into the future, you know, what are the opportunities for, you know, new OEMs or, you know, a Gen 7 car or, you know, relevance? What does that look like versus where we are today? So he gave a nice overview of that. And um, then some questions and then uh, brought Jill Gregory up, who's our, uh, who's our CMO, EVP and CMO, and she talked about where we are with the playoffs and from a marketing perspective, our partnership with NBC, uh, working with the racetracks um, around this idea of something we call Project Horsepower, which is essentially looking at two KPIs of attendance and, and ratings or consumption overall. So, uh, and then some questions there, and that was our, that was our deal. It's, it was, um, it's a lot of fun and a little bit of a different format than what we've done in the past. Again, I'm not a very good host, but I muddle my way through it. <laughs> it is a lot harder to be the interviewer than the interviewee, I find. I, I, I think, think so it's too. underrated skill, the one that I'm still developing. A couple of questions there. One, do you know what a tapered spacer is? I do know what a tapered spacer okay. is. Because so. <laughs> I don't know if I could explain it if I was put on the spot. Yeah, well, I, I know what it does. So <laughs> That's kind of where there I were, there were three or four pieces in here, and I'd have to pick one out. I, I probably could, but it's important for us to use the right vernacular when we're talking about what that does for, uh, to the engines. To be conversant in what you're actually doing That's the correct. competition next year. That's, That's correct. That is important. And another term I just picked up there, KPI. What does that stand for? Yeah, essentially they're just metrics. So what are you doing? You know, what are your performance indexes that you're looking at? What? How do you measure success, right? So for us, we're looking at three key, what I would call fan-centric KPIs. The first one being interest level. So how can we grow the interest level of the sport? And the other two flow from that, which are consumption. So TV ratings are very important. So what are we doing from a TV rating standpoint where we're reversing the negative trend that's have happened in ratings in most sports, including our own. And so how do we peel back that and create ratings increases or deceleration of, of what of what a ratings would look like or what a ratings look like. And then the second component of that from a metric standpoint would be attendance. And what can we do to work with, you know, our racetracks to create a better not just race day experience, but event promotion. So what is the most meaningful way to have your fans understand that, hey, this race is coming up at Charlotte or this race is coming up at Texas or Daytona or whatever that might be and working with the racetracks and our broadcast partners, affiliates, to make sure that we're promoting smartly and wisely that, you know, so we can maximize our ticket sales. I want to dive into that a little bit more uh, after we hear a bit more about your background, but just put a bow on the Garage Talk concept. Is this something you guys do quarterly or is it's it? It's quarterly. We would do it more frequently if we had some news. So we have a number of different tools that we do to t talk to our employees. So we have an internet site. So when you turn on a computer, there's news and information about different things that happen. Here in the Charlotte office, if you go to our break room, you'll see different things that are on the television, how long someone's worked here, birthdays, interesting things, events that might happen. So again, just trying to engage the employee base as much as we can. And you said before we got started, Steve, something that I thought was really interesting, that it's a new day at NASCAR for a lot of reasons, I'm sure, but it's not because of you. You just happen to be the guy in the president role as you're moving into this era. No with the question. Company. No question. I think in, in a lot of it just has to do, as we talked about initially, is around learnings. What are the learnings that we have that get this sport to a place where there is significant growth that's happening within the sport? It isn't about me at all. What I can do to try to help Shepard or bring people together or you know create something that that helps get this sport more solid footing is something that we'll do and something that I will do within my current role. You've had a long career 
in mostly sports, yep. uh, business, and marketing. Worked at NFL as a vice president of corporate marketing for several years and uh, worked at an advertising uh, media agency. I should have started this by saying everybody should go and read or listen to Jeff Gluck's How I Got Here podcast with Steve Phelps because, as always, that's excellent source material for <laughs> when I do some of these. I also learned through that that you worked for Guinness on the Bass Ale brand. Would have been around the time that probably I was imbibing some of that. That was one of my favorite <laughs> spirits you. in college. So I appreciate that. You probably had an effect on that. <laughs> Obviously, business branding that's your forte more so than the competition side here for NASCAR yeah I yep. know you're you know what a tapered spacer is but business and branding is obviously your background what drew you to that Steve why did you fall so into that as your career path yeah I think I, I like a lot of people who get into sports I think there's an there was an interest that I had I played a lot of sports I love watching sports attending sporting events so I wanted to combine this passion I had from a business branding standpoint in an area that would I would find interesting so I started out of business school. I worked at a company called American Owned Products, and I work on the Chef Boyardee brand. Great opportunity to learn about marketing and branding. I didn't have any passion for the <laughs> Chef Boyardee brand. No disrespect. The chefs had, you know, such a delicious meal in a can. I uh, think we all moved past it once we're we out did. of our yeah, adolescence. It's, yes. really <laughs> a, it's really a cost calorie thing. So, But I did want to get into sports. Um, I didn't really know what that meant. Mm-hmm. It's just, well, that sounds cool. And so... The chef job turned into a brand manager job at Guinness on the Basile brand, which turned into an opportunity at the NFL, which obviously led to Wasserman and then me being here at NASCAR. So a lot of time in sports. I really enjoy it. Someone asked me, and in fact, it was Jeff in the piece that I did with him. And he asked, well, what's the difference between your job here at NASCAR and my job and your job at the NFL? And actually closed the garage talk yesterday with this actual statement, which is, and I believe this to be true, the NFL has got a, it's a great brand, it's a great sport, and when you work there, it, it's a privilege. So Roger Goodell would say it's an honor and privilege to work here. I agree with him. I don't think for me personally, and this is just me, when I went to work every day, was I going to make a difference in the National Football League? Can I really make a difference? And, you know, I did a nice job there, got promoted a bunch of times fine. I never felt that I was actually, I could make that difference on a day-to-day basis. Here, I believe that everyone who works here, not the president of NASCAR or the head of competition or the CMO, everyone can make a difference. I really believe that. They can be brand ambassadors for our sport. I see it every day at different levels. People have interesting ideas or, hey, thought about doing this a different way or you know, just introducing them to the sport that they love, to me, it makes a difference. And it's almost, hey, it's one new fan at a time. And where's that next great idea going to come from? And that's what you can do with this sport. That's why I'm excited to come to work every day because I think I can make a difference. Well, obviously, you've been promoted to one of the most important positions in the company. So this is somewhat self-evident. But how do you feel like, as an, in an individual way, Steve, that you've made a difference in NASCAR? This is somewhat hard because I'm asking you to identify your strengths or your accomplishments or feats, but what can you point to at NASCAR and say, hey, that's, that's something that Steve Phelps did that I'm proud of? I would say, Nate, probably the best way to answer that is, as I look at my strengths and weaknesses, I think one of the strengths that I have is to try to bring people together. This sport coming together as a single entity, not in rea- you know, in actuality, but in thinking the same way, doing the same things, marking it together, you know, whatever that might be that creates stronger competition, creating healthier teams or healthier tracks or driving 
more ticket sales or more digital sales or whatever that might be. I think one of the strengths that I have is getting to know people and them feeling that, hey, I sincerely want to help in growing this sport. There are going to be decisions that we make that won't always be popular with every single stakeholder we have, and I understand that, or every fan, frankly, that we have. And I understand that too, but I think as I go into this new role, I think it'll be more important than ever to try to look at this collaborative nature of the sport and create things where, you know, one plus one plus one equals something far greater than three. And that's what we need to try to get at. And that's what we need to do as a sport. And I'm I'm convinced of it. So the first part is having, is identifying what that vision is identifying what it is that we're trying to achieve collectively and then have people buy into it. And if there's one thing I hope to do or continue to do is to do just that. And I, I think that, you know, looking backwards and forwards, I think that's probably the, the single most important thing would, that would come out of sitting in that chair. So you consider yourself a consensus builder? Is that fair I to think say? so. Yeah. I think so. And I, you know, with that said, I think every stakeholder will understand that at the end of the day, NASCAR is going to have to make the decision that we believe is best for the sport. And again, it may not work exactly or perfectly for every stakeholder group or, or frankly, every fan. If we could create something that every fran- fan would love, I mean, that's, that's certainly nirvana. We, it, doing that is very difficult. So we try to get as close as, close as we can to what that's going to look like. Right, because it's a constant tug of war between so many different constituencies, whether it's fans or sponsors or teams or manufacturers or drivers. It's all across the board, right? It's exactly right. So I, I know that you know everyone has a, an idea of what an ideal schedule would look like, but every person's ideal schedule may not work for the person literally right next to them saying, well, that doesn't work for me. But we have to take in all, those, all that data, all those inputs, and then make an informed decision that what we believe is going to be right for the broad stakeholder group, for the fans and overall. Scheduling also on the agenda here, but I want to ask you one more thing about your background. Something sure. else that Jeff Clark and I actually learned at the same time. He talked to you about this as well. You grew up in Vermont. And I learned at the same dinner Jeff Cluck was at with Dave Moody that he saw you quite often (laughs) when he was working at Catamount Speedway. Is that the the racetrack? Okay. I'll be perfectly honest, Steve. I mean, not to offend you in any sort of way, but like on the (laughs) level of NASCAR surprises, Steve Phelps was a race fan as a kid is up there for me with Jeff Gordon was a champion break dancer in high school. (laughs) Um, Well, you saw that though. I did. Yeah, true, true. That I witnessed and said, okay, I I was surprised. I didn't know. I guess I should have done my research homework this year prior to you becoming president, but I had no idea that you had racing in your blood that way. Yeah, I'll tell you a quick story. I do. I I have been going to NASCAR racing since since I was five years old and it, it was very funny I told this story, and I think I may have told it to to Jeff as well, growing up in, in whatever it was, the mid-late 60s, and watching cartoons, and Speed Racer was on the cartoon. Right. And so the white number five at that Catamount Speedway, because it was a kind of a Can-Am series, so it was, you know, you've had primarily Vermonters in there racing with folks from Quebec. And the gentleman who was racing from Quebec was one of the guys was the white number five so that's the guy i rooted for my dad was like you got to root for the vermonter you can't root for the the canadian that's not right and i'm like no i'm rooting for him because that's who i wanted and so i had a a fan send me a tweet say the guy that you're talking about it was jean cabana and i said that's exactly who it was (laughs) and the uh, interesting thing when i met bill france and i told him this story he said who it was so that was cabana 
I'm like, oh my god, it's unbelievable. <laughs> Bill French Jr. just Bill knew French about Jr. who this guy was. was racing at Catamount Speedway. He yeah. did. He All the other exactly. things he had going on. Oh yeah, it was unbelievable. This <laughs> is was something else car. I have in my head, just which is pretty amazing. He was an amazing guy. I love the classic New England provincialism too. That now you can't root for guys from the oh no no border. certainly not <laughs> certainly not. No. Was there anything else besides speed racer that appealed to you back then about racing in NASCAR? Was it just it was a sport and you yeah got to watch it was it the person? you know kind of the sights and the sounds anything that would I mean, it was an amazing, I remember the literally the first time I went and just being overwhelmed by the sound that it was, a, you know, it was a night race, the sounds, the, you know, kind of the way the colors would pop and tore up some cars. And it was, uh, it was fascinating to me and I was hooked. So when NASCAR came to you and put on the hard sell to leave the preeminent, well, I guess at that point you'd already left the NFL, but l- leave a decent job to come work here. Did your youth kind of factor into that decision? That, I, hey, I'm kind of a race guy at heart. Well, I'll tell you another story. So there was, uh, I was the resident NASCAR guy at the NFL and somehow Paul Tagliabue, commissioner of the NFL when I worked there, found that out and said, hey, I'm meeting with Bill France Jr. Can you come up and give me a, a tutorial on NASCAR, which I did, <laughs> uh, which was pretty interesting, right? <laughs> right. And so fast forward, you know, I love the sport and I've always loved it. And so it, it seemed like a natural thing for me to do. And I remember going to dinner with Lisa Kennedy and, and she talked about in her mind what this would be and how it would work. It felt like a place that was a sense of community. It felt like a place that was a sense of family that was very different from the NFL. NFL's again a wonderful brand, wonderful sport, but there, it's 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 different. And for here, I felt that difference immediately when I came there. I remember going in the garage. I think it was in Kansas, my first Kansas race. I'm in the garage. I'm at the NASCAR kitchen hauler at one of the benches there. There is no one else in the garage. No one, not a single person. And I'm just have a cup of coffee. I'm sitting down, kind of chilly out. And I can see this guy, he was kind of walking away from me or kind of kind of like vectoring away. And he all of a sudden turns and comes over and says, hi to me, never met this man before, ever. Went out of his way to say good morning to me. Hey, how are you doing? Had no idea who I was, right? No one. It was Richard Childress. And I knew at that point, I'm like, how about that? <laughs> Richard Childress went out of his way to come say to, hi to a complete stranger in the garage. That'll stick Pretty cool. You. That's a neat story. And Tagliabue, was that just opposition research, getting worried about no, the competition? I don't or? think so. I think, you know, listen, Paul is a, he's a really nice guy, really smart. And he always wanted to be thoughtful about the people that he was meeting. And so he'd understand about that. I don't think he really saw that as a, hey, here's a threat to, to huh. our organization. I really, I think, in general, those that are in sports look at each other as not as competition, but as, hey, we're all in sports and whatever good things happen within sports, uh, tide raising all boats. Certainly, you guys are looking ahead, as you mentioned, Steve, to 2019. Uh, sounds like there's a lot going on the event side there. And then 2020 as well. Steve O'Donnell said something interesting, Steve, on Sirius XM this week about changes to the 2018 schedule. He said, we've seen some new excitement. We've seen some different storylines. That's helped set up some discussions around 2020 of additional opportunities, not just in the final 10 playoff races, but throughout the schedule. And he mentioned, obviously, the Roval, which comes right before Steve Phelps starts as president. So <laughs> pretty nice <laughs> entrance take, there. I'll take yeah. that one. <laughs> Having that race the day before day your first, official I'll take that start one. date. Yeah. That one was mine. <laughs> that certainly ginned up a lot of enthusiasm and excitement for potentially having different looking tracks maybe in the future. So 2020, how radically different could it look 
from what we have right now? Well, I will start with the absolute truth. I have no idea. But I think that there is a willingness among tracks and teams and NASCAR and uh, our broadcast partners to look at things in a different way. And I do think the Roval opened up some eyes. I think much like what you saw around the first race at Eldora, that first dirt, you know truck race in, on dirt. I do think we have to be cautious. After that first Eldora race, everyone's like, "We got to have more dirt. We got to have more dirt races." Plead guilty, yeah. Right, and so and I think you have to you have to look at okay, what's the specialness of it? I'm not suggesting there wouldn't be another roval. I'll put that in quotes moving forward. But I think there are changes to the schedule. There have been things that have been kind of tossed around. Around, can you have a double header weekend? Can you have uh, a midweek? race can you have can you pull the schedule forward does it make sense to go to a street course and or go to more short tracks everything's on the table we have to again i think conceptually people buy off on hey that might be a good idea how you get there is a more difficult piece right and that's how you we need to make sure that we are you know working closely with our track partners to have you know to get their input which is significant but also our broadcast partners and and then listening to our fans. We have a 25,000 panel uh, fan council, which um, we get a lot of really good data out of. So I think there was a concern before we had a fan council, well, they're not listening to the fans. And so we wanted to make sure we had a tool that allowed us to do that. And of those 25,000 fans, almost all of them are avid fans. And so we're actually toying with the idea of having a casual fan council versus just an avid fan council to try to make sure there's some balance to that. But, you know, we want to reward our, our most avid fans and obviously listening to what they have to say about the sport that they love is really important to us. Do you have a rough estimate of what percentage of those 25,000 want more short tracks <laughs> on the schedule <laughs> of 2020? That was nice enough to have some guy tell me that on Twitter about the time that my appointment was announced you know he said hey let me help you out more short tracks more road courses <laughs> and i think he gave me his address so i could send him a check for, for i'm sure you did for yeah, yeah. i'm sure i did yeah <laughs> there was an expletive in there somewhere I, so it was there always it is was on all, twitter it was all it was all good <laughs> i get those too it was all good <laughs> so is that where you think it might be headed I, though I is that the fan feedback you get i think it's hard it's well from fan st- feedback yeah absolutely yeah. I mean, I think I think they go in cycles a little bit. So when I first started at NASCAR, the two lowest rated races in all of NASCAR were Sonoma and Watkins Glen. And now they're easily in the top 10 and, and most of the time in the top five. So does that get your attention? Of course it does. I think short tracks have always have a special place in, in the hearts of our fans. And part of that's, you know, kind of the short track grassroots racing that... A lot of folks, particularly our avid fans, have grown up on. And then just the excitement level that comes with some of those races, the beating, the banging, and getting into someone, moving someone. There's clearly some excitement there. So yeah. it, it's just trying to f- strike the right balance and looking at all these different viewpoints and assessing what are the most important ones to move forward on. But you feel like, again, no, there's probably no definitive percentage, but majority of avid fans probably would like to see I think so. I, 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 yeah. I don't know the you know, the exact percentage. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I think it's a fairly strong drumbeat that you hear. Here's something I've wondered about logistically, Steve. Track-wise, everyone signed a five-year sanctioning agreement in 2016. Yes. So the last year would be 2020. That's correct. And that's when we're talking about possible Uh, schedule changes. Well, that's why I I chose my (laughs) words very carefully, which is we certainly would have a, a very 
discussions with our track partners are critical, right? So we do have five-year sanctions, and within those sanctions, it says there are certain things you can do and certain things you can't. So they will have a major seat at the table. I do think that, you know, there is a, both from the IC side, from the SMI side, and from the independents, that there is a willingness to look at you know, making sure that we are giving the fans what they want, working with our broadcast partners to maximize what that schedule would look like from a ratings perspective, just a lot of different things in the mix. And so obviously nothing to report directionally. I would just say that there's a lot of interest to try to figure something out that might look different, looks differently than it does for the 2019 schedule. Right. And no matter how it looks for 2020, it would require some cooperation from a a track saying, hey, I might need to no question. Exit my last year. That's correct. The event promotion that you mentioned, I know when you met with the media, which we were gracious to get so much of your time shortly before you began officially a few weeks ago, you talked about this reinventing event promotion sure. was how you described it. How does that look specifically, Steve? I mean, what, sure. what things would you guys be doing that we would notice and saying, hey, this is what's going to drive attendance and ratings back to where we want to be? Sure. Well, I think it's a, it's not a, there isn't a single answer to that. What it is, is so when I talk about our own 2019 planning, looking through that lens of how are you going to drive ratings and how are you going to drive attendance and how do you work backwards from there? What are the tactical things that you need to do and how can you influence what a track is doing, what your media partner is doing, what teams and drivers are doing in the usage of their time that best maximizes event promotion or race day experience. And so that's what we're trying to do. So we're trying to build at the center what we're doing that would make sense. But if we're going to maximize it, we need the other groups to come on board as well. So you look at what your colleagues at NBC have done through, you know, we're actually doing joint creative. That is NASCAR and NBC creative. And we are, so there's not mixed messages. It's get together on a Monday morning, determine, okay, what happened this past weekend? We're headed to Kansas this weekend. It's a cutoff race. What is it that we're looking to do? How are we going to jointly do the creative. So we're shooting creative this during the weekend, the past weekend, and then we're pushing that forward. So there are, there are stories that are topical and timely. And that's just one piece of it. So then you work backwards. All right, if I'm a track and I've got this renewal period for, you know, for ticket sales, and what do we want to do there? And then how does it work from the day after a race for 365 days? What does that plan looks like? how can we maximize driver driver's time and driver usage to try to drive a rating or, or drive a ticket sale uh, or hospitality or camping or whatever that might be. And it really gets back to this whole collaborative nature. But if we're not building the plan at the center, I think it's difficult to have other people say, well, I'll get on board. And so what is NASCAR doing? So we'll do, you know, look at our database, working with an SMI or an ISC or an independent and figure out between the two databases where you can target, geo-target where specific fans are who we know have an interest in potentially going to a racetrack or have a particular driver who's a fan of theirs that runs well there or is from that area or whatever that might be that we can then target smartly through email blast or whatever that mechanism is going to be to capture something that will you know, an action item to say, buy a ticket or do this or watch the race, looking at doing affiliate programs, looking at doing community-based things, looking to work with our short tracks and cross-promote 
between the two, bringing drivers out there like we did. We had three or four drivers out to the Vegas K&N race, um, the Pro Series race out there. And there was a driver autograph with, you know, Harvick and Kurt Busch and uh, some of those folks before that Thursday night race. It's fantastic. And so we need to do more of that. I think there's this notion and we talked about a couple of weeks ago that, hey, NASCAR doesn't like short track racing. NASCAR doesn't like Kyle Larson running you know, here, there, and everywhere. Not, not true. Kyle Larson actually said that. He I felt, that, <laughs> yeah, he felt I, I asked him out in Michigan. He said, well, I don't want to talk about the Knoxville Nationals because sure. I know the blowback is going to be there. And you, I, you've kind of extended an olive branch. To I, absolutely. And, and I, whether it's Kyle, I don't care who it is. If there's an opportunity to have one of our drivers, you know, race in the Knoxville Nationals, God bless. And it's something he enjoys. It's something that uh, I think can, you know, kind of nurture both fan bases. And it would be great if we're bringing them to our races and then our guys are bringing you know going the other way as well going to those races too from both a you know an attendance standpoint but also just an interest level standpoint and as an offshoot of that steve you mentioned during the media availability when you talked about that kyle larson example we need to reach out to world of outlaws and other forms of motorsports is what you said so again two and a half weeks into the steve phelps regime but (laughs) have you had discussions with anybody on that side (laughs) or indycar or the on the plan no listen we we have the good fortune of going to indy and we meet with jay fry and and mark miles and and obviously uh, Doug Bowles. And I, I think for us, part of the 2019 plans, there will be pieces in there that will look at what we're doing from a short track standpoint, for sure, and how we cross promote. And then it's also incumbent upon whatever the NASCAR track is in that particular area to do the same thing. That's what I'm talking about, making sure if we have a plan that they're layering on with what that's going to be as well. Because doing it ourselves it'll be ineffective or not as effective as it would be if we're partnering with daytona international speedway and you know volusia county or some of the other racetracks that that would be around around that particular racetrack potential for indycar double headers in the future you know i don't know i I, potential i think that there's synergies from the motorsports side from a from a broadcast standpoint you know sam flood's interested in doing a motorsport or he's going to do a motorsports summit to try to look at some best practices and are there ways that we can cross promote i think it's fantastic but in the short term at least for 2019 when you talk about short tracks that's more world of outlaws maybe it, dirt racing it is based. no question yeah and i think we're obviously our schedule is already set for 2019 with that said from a promotional standpoint absolutely and again there's some things that we would do before the daytona 500 around the new smyrna race down there but what can we do that's better? You know, having NASCAR employees go down and you know do some hospitality around that race, that's fine. But are you really driving ticket sales to the 500? Are you really driving tickets to the New Smyrna race? I think we can do a better job there, frankly. Going back to what you were talking about with, with the geo-targeting, Steve, is that essentially you can be so selective that you can find the fans that you think if you just reach them with an email or I don't know if it's a text or, sure. or how you or a tweet or how you do it yep. you feel like you can drill down to that granular level of we can find these 50 100 200 people and get amazing return if we can interact yeah, with them. I've, I've seen the I've seen the results of what we've done so working with the SMI people even around the around the Roval now ticket sales were up for the Roval but you look at the percentage, which I won't get in today, of new fans that came to that Roval was an extraordinary increase in new fans. Hmm. First time fans coming to that facility to watch that race. But we've done it at every race this year to try to drive t- ticket sales. So it's our folks 
at NASCAR who oversee our database, working with, you know, this case at SMI with Jeff Ulrich, who works for SMI, and they're combining both research, who's the most likely target for them to identify coming out of our database and doing the same thing with theirs. That's been a powerful tool. We'll continue to do that. And then also as these, we're able to create these databases, it's not just to sell a ticket, it's actually to push content. So we want to give fans something that it's just not, hey, the race is coming into town, buy a ticket. Or, hey, here's an opportunity to buy a t-shirt. It's, no, here's some really cool content that we're going to push your way because you have told us you want it. It'll be video. It'll be something interesting. It'll be something that, in many cases, will be the driver that they want. So is it a driver message or is it just on-track activity? And the answer is probably yes and yes. So that centralized approach, it sounds like that you're taking there, Steve, where it's NASCAR working in conjunction with the tracks and you know developing an, an approach to get fans. It sounds as if, from the way I've heard you talk about sponsorship and specifically the title sponsorship structure and how that's going to look differently, that it's similar and that it's almost going to be like a one-stop shopping type situation of sponsorship where instead of having sponsors get approached by tracks and NASCARs and, and teams and manufacturers, you guys want to all do it together. Is that sort of another... Or parallel to, it is. to that? Okay. It is. And, I, and that's an important way for this sport to go because it, it's essentially trying to make it easier for sponsors to say yes. So we know that our fans are the best fans anywhere. They're the highest quality fans on the planet. And they are. Because they're not just, it's just not a big fan base. It's just not a passionate fan base. It's a fan base that understands the importance of sponsorship. You know, as at the NFL, I didn't know what, when you're selling sponsorship there or, or to a local team, what is it that my Coca-Cola sponsorship buys me as a fan. What do I get? You know, do I get a, a long snapper? Do I get a you know half right. a wide receiver? I don't know. I know exactly what I get when I'm sponsoring the 12 car. I get Blaney, mm-hmm. right? That's what I get, and that fuels my fandom. Good. I'm gonna buy. I'm gonna buy goods and services that are sponsoring my favorite driver. That's what I get. That's what makes our fans so special, frankly. And this new sponsorship model makes it easier for, we think, for sponsors to say yes, because, and we want to give them an ownership position that cuts across all these various entities, tracks, teams, broadcast partners, the sanctioning body, just to create things that are not competing with each other. They're actually complementary to each other. That's the, you know, what we're endeavoring to do at this particular point. So we're just now starting those things for the 2020 season. Um, starting to talk to some sponsors, and the reaction thus far has been very positive. And the idea then is somebody comes to you and you sit down at the table with team, track, manufacturer, whoever, and say, okay, this is what you're getting, all these together yep. in one place. And that theoretically, I mean, will that help teams? Will it change the way teams go out and procure companies or funding? Or it's probably a little bit too far yeah, I think down that's, at this point. Yeah, and that's, I think there's a, that's a little bit of a different piece. So there are going to be sponsors that will only be team sponsors. There will be sponsors who will only be track sponsors. There will be sponsors who will only be sanctioning body sponsors. And then there will be this group that will have, you know, m- across multiple, these multiple platforms. What we want to do is want to make sure that we're open to everyone. We don't want to push sponsorship away by creating a model that would be limiting for us to do that. And we don't think that's what this does, uh, but we want to make sure that we are open to all. And there will be situations from a race entitlement standpoint or an official standpoint where someone just wants to have you know kind of a B2B relationship and they don't want to buy a lot of media and they don't want to be at the racetrack. 
with signage and different opportunities there, they just want to have B2B. We'll give them an opportunity to do that. How do you keep sponsors, Steve, investing at the same level with teams as they once did? Sponsors once invested at a certain level because I think they needed attract displays and exhibits that fans like. And the way that digital social media has affected things, I think they can approach things differently and they don't need to have race markets as part of their package. So how do you maintain, I guess, one, the investment for teams from sponsors with that model changing? And how do you maintain the experience for fans at tracks where sponsors maybe aren't as involved on that side as they used to be? Yeah, well, it's interesting because I think this model, this new model actually helps the latter, which is if I'm going to be invested in broad sense across the sport with multiple touch points and multiple entities, that will actually help the at-race, at-track experience because the footprint that will happen in the the midway and the things will we'll have sponsors who want to be there the clearly the how sponsors approach our fan base is different than it used to be so used to be a ton of in-store things used to be a ton of at track piece pieces that it doesn't mean that those things don't happen they're happening less frequently because of digital and social media because brands market differently as it relates to team sponsorships the teams still have to me i think the most unique and special place within all of sports including nascar because essentially that brand is that team for that week and that's changed as well right where you had brands that were there for a full season and now maybe there for a half or a quarter of a season and they have to sell multiple brands onto a car so it's different and the model's different but i think that it's still the the singular most special thing um, within sports because you own that team it's your team so is it you know use the blaney example is it the blaney car for that week whatever that sponsor is going to be that's who it is it's still blaney it's still a penske car it's still the 12 car but for that brand and how that paint out looks it's all about your brand and you own that team and there's something special to that so what's the what's the mix of what of what the optimal amount is for team sponsorship that part seems to be you know still in flux i would love to see 36 paint outs and with one brand on one car to me that would be the best best piece we don't seem to be there now now do i think we'll we'll see in the future a brand go to a single car i do um you think we go back to the days where we're just i do i don't think it's not going to be yeah i don't think it's going to be widespread for Mm -hmm. sure but do I see a, a day where you can find a brand that will that will want to be on one car? I think so. It'll be few and far between for sure because there are most brands that would say, you know what, two-thirds of a season I can make work or half a season I can make work. I do think there's something special about being the primary brand on one car. And so having more than half the races makes that, to me, makes that car special and it makes it yours as a brand. And the teams are doing, I think, a a really, a a far better job of having brands understand what they can do for them. So it's not just, hey, your brand on this car, look how it looks. It's, hey, what are you trying to achieve with your brand objectives? And how can my race team, I'll tell you how my race can help you do that. I can tell you how my driver helps you do that with the various marketing channels that you have. You talked to us about this a few weeks ago, Steve, about sponsorship. And I think the way you put it was uh, there are some people who 
believe that you don't think there are headwinds and you acknowledge sure. that there are headwinds. Sure. But you also have said that there's a misconception that maybe sponsorship isn't doing well and sure. you feel that's not necessarily true, even though obviously there's the news about Lowe's, there's news about 5-Hour Energy. Sure. Are you still bullish on where sponsorship is in NASCAR then? I, I am. I think that, and again, I've been characterized as having my head in the sand. In fact, it's been depicted on Twitter with my head <laughs> in my sand or whatever that might be. That's okay. I think if you look at the amount of sponsorship that exists within NASCAR, we still have more sponsorship than anyone. Is the dollar amount lower per brand? It is. But if you look at the number of sponsors we have, it's as strong as it's ever been. Do I think that we'll find replacements, you know, that the the 48 team will find a replacement for Lowe's? I do, or multiple replacements. I think they will. Sponsorship is hard. It's just, it's hard to, for every sport, not just NASCAR, in order to sell sponsorship. And the sponsorship model is continuing to change and what's important to brands continues to change. I do think that what we have is still special. And the reason why it's still special comes back to the fans. If we didn't have fans that cared about sponsorship, then it would be an entirely different equation and I would be talking a very different tune. And it doesn't mean that the NFL or the NBA, they're not successful because they, you know, their sponsorship model looks different than ours. They're wildly successful, right? They have great numbers and they're incredibly popular we have something that they don't have and that's what we have to take advantage of frankly and that's the fan passion and that's a fan passion and this this notion of i get it i get sponsorship i understand what it means to that to to nascar and i'll continue to support it and they do you may have already answered this question but how often do you check twitter if you're finding images of yourself depicted as an ostrich, probably maybe not not minute by minute, I would think. Well, I think if you if you look at the number of tweets that I do, I look at it more than I actually tweet. Yes. So, and sometimes it's um or retweet, it's, um or like things. I think it's um. You know, oftentimes it's it's amusing, and other times it's frustrating because. I will look at something and say, that particular person has no idea what they're talking about. But I don't engage in it because here's it's not, they know it from the lens that they look through. And that's how they see it. That's fine. They're a fan. And, you know, they have a right to voice their opinion. And that's fine. You know, I would say that the name calling and the negativity that exists on Twitter now and again is probably my first deal. But that's that is what it is and they have a they have a voice that they haven't had before and i don't think that's a bad thing so your predecessor as nascar president and roger goodell among other executives in sports do see twitter as a positive you seem a little more circumspect about being an active participant well i think that's more about me and i think part of it is it's just your personality you know, this is my yeah. personal you know brent is you know was um, very active on twitter and he'd interact with fans it's not that i don't want to interact with fans I want to make sure that we are listening. Steve O'Donnell is very active on Twitter. Um, he's got you know ten times more followers than I do, and that's perfectly. I love that. Will I be more active moving forward? I'm probably a little more active than I have been. We've got a lot of things to do right now as we head into the 2019 season and finish the 2018 season. I'll get there. It probably won't be. I won't increase my activity significantly over the next five races. I'm in favor of that, by the way. We all need a little Twitter priority in our lives, <laughs> and I'm, I'm glad it's coming after some other big things on your plate. However, though, I will say, Twitter at racetracks and social media, yep. uh, we've talked about this in the past, Steve, and I know that the, you know the at-track experience with digital technology and the ability to do social in a, sure. in a meaningful way if you're a fan, that's important at racetracks. And unfortunately, I'm still hearing 
I heard it from fans on social last weekend from Talladega that, that there are still struggles with Wi-Fi and cellular. And I know tracks are spending a lot of money doing upgrades, sure. infrastructure, capital improvements that you yeah. can see physically. But are you hopeful, or is there a plan there from NASCAR that hey, we need to like ramp that part of it up? Listen, I've been a, although may not the most active on social media, the importance of social media and digital media to our sport is incredible. I do believe that going to a race racetrack in particular when the race is happening we have to make sure that we have an immersive experience that allows our fans to be able to interact with not just what's happening on the racetrack but with their device that allows them to track results what's happening there's video what's the audio so they have that and they're allowed they can really get connected to what's happening on the racetrack I think the way to do that absolutely is through, you know, whether it's the NASCAR app or it's uh, FanVision, th- there are ways to do that, but the Wi-Fi experience is going to be critical for us moving forward, getting that to the right place. So the tracks are investing in more Wi-Fi. The cellular service is, I know in some places, is spotty and it's hard, but there's more and more investment that's going on from a racetrack perspective to try to inc- increase connectivity. What is the likelihood of a new manufacturer, do you think, by 2021? And that's something that came up with the 2019 rules. I know that's a yeah. goal. And what, what do you think? Um, I don't know. Listen, I'm optimistic, um, but apparently I'm optimistic anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I believe that the kind of the path we're on will allow us to get there. We're having a lot of discussions with, with different OEMs. Our priority is obviously the existing three OEMs we have. We need to make sure that we're listening to them and what what the direction that they're interested in having us go uh, in the future. But there is some interest from, from new OEMs, and I think it would be good for the sport. It brings a fresh perspective. It obviously brings money. It brings promotional opportunities. Um, it's good for teams. It's good for broadcast partners. There are advantages, certainly, to having an additional OEM or to participate. What that timeline looks like, I don't know. Um, is it feasible? It's feasible, but the clock is ticking, for sure. It's not It's not an easy endeavor. It's not like, hey, I've decided to sign a sponsorship agreement, and we're going to start in 2019. Okay, we'll do that. You know, We'll ramp up. Here's our plan, and off you go. It's about relationships. It's about What's the engine going to look like? Are you going to partner with someone? Are you going to build your own? All kinds of different pieces that need to happen. Certainly doable and something that's very important to us. We'll just keep pushing forward on it. Okay, we'll stay tuned there. And I will wrap up with this. You've talked, Steve, that Richard Childress example. And I've heard you say it in other interviews that you've done that NASCAR is very much a family experience. I know that's very appealing to you. I know that when we've had a couple of announcements this year, You've had to miss it because you were a family man. You're committed, I think, believe it was your son's college visits or experiences. And I saw you at Dover and you had your daughter there. Is that the essence of NASCAR to you? It seems like that's, the more I hear you talk about family, it's it's not lip service. It seems yeah. like you're, you're very big on that being a, a huge part of this appeal. No, I, I, it is to me personally. I think it is, you know, this sense of com- two pieces, community overall. And so you're part of this community and you go to the racetrack all the time and you see other media members you see you know drivers and crew chiefs and others that are your friends they're part of your circle um, and that's what we have and when you're in the center of that it's great but I see NASCAR as kind of concentric circles everyone has that participation everyone's part of the community that is NASCAR and if I'm a fan I can share it with my neighbor or I can share it with my kid I can share it with whomever that makes them part of the bigger family and I believe that you know, my deal f- with my own family, I have four kids, and I have twins who are, 
who cart and they're outdoor carting and um, they separate me from my money because it's not <laughs> inexpensive, which is why I have to keep working. Um, and no, I'm just kidding. And seeing NASCAR through their eyes, whether they're watching on television or, or this specialness that is coming to the race is fantastic. So my three older kids, you know, have been to, you know, dozens of NASCAR races. My daughter, my youngest daughter, who I brought to Dover, that was her first race. And so seeing that through her eyes um, and just watching the specialness of what that was and the watching her face light up, other than the time that she, when she got stung by a bee, you know, a picture, you know, with which I didn't post on Twitter, of <laughs> her in front of, of Miles. It was great for me to be able to experience that with my daughter. Now, she clearly had different access than most 11-year-olds have, and sure. that, that was a special thing for me. That never gets lost on me, and so I was waiting to go into the garage, and Rodney Childers said, you do realize that you can go over there and get into the garage <laughs> early, and I said, I'm good, and we just sat, you know, talked with him for a while and talked to Todd Gordon, and so do all 11-year-olds talk to Todd Gordon and Rodney Childers? No. But it was neat for her to stand there and wait for the 15 minutes for that gate to open and see all the brightly colored uniforms and look around and see what the NASCAR community is about. Um, and I talked to her about that and talked to her about all the families that are connected to these people and why that was so important and why my job is so special is that I get to try to influence what happens there. Steve, I really appreciate all your insight and for joining me. Thanks for being here. It was great to be here, Nate. Appreciate the uh, time and our conversation. The NASCAR and NBC podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify. Please leave a rating or review. That really helps us out in terms of spreading the word. And as always, you can send me feedback on Twitter at Nate Ryan is my handle. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR and NBC podcast. This summer, click into cordless power with Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot. Tackle more than half an acre of grass with the convenience and gas-like power of the Ryobi 40-volt battery-powered mower. And keep your flower beds fresh with the 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Then clear debris with the 40-volt jet fan leaf blower. Click into Memorial Day savings happening now at your cordless power source, the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.